when we look at how the world's transitioned from 2020 to now, it's like brands that are betting bigger in retail, I think are going to win because online is becoming so expensive and so competitive and so saturated that retail gives you that diversity. It gives you that living and breathing footprint. It shows the heart and soul of your brand. It brings the customer to life. When you Google Chase Fisher, the CEO and founder of Blender's Eyewear, you'll see headlines touting a guy who turned a $2,000 loan into a $90 million e-commerce brand. But Chase's story goes way beyond those headlines. In my opinion, his thinking around ad strategies, supply chain, partial acquisitions, and more are way more interesting and valuable to anyone who's looking for more than just a feel-good story. Chase got into all of those topics on this episode of Up Next in Commerce. And he took us behind the scenes of his supposed Cinderella story to tell us that it was much harder than it actually looked. Plus, we even touched on whether we'll be seeing some Blender's glasses in the metaverse anytime soon. Let's hop into it. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show, and I would really love it. So please, let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review. Let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities? or little discussed financial trends, or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness. Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who wanna break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Chase, welcome to the podcast. What's going on? Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I was looking at your background. Of course, the title everywhere I saw was, okay, this dude takes a $2,000 loan, builds a $90 million company. That's amazing. But before we jump into that tagline, I actually want to go like way back to early days of Chase to hear what was it like growing up? Because someone like that, I feel like has to be a hustler, has to always have this entrepreneurial spirit. You probably were doing a lot of crazy things like early on. And I was hoping we can kind of start there to get to know you a bit. Totally. So yeah. So if we, if we backtrack my, my experience with, um, branding kind of came at a young age, right? I grew up a competitive surfer. I started surfing at age seven and that was like the first thing in life that I felt cool doing. And so, um, you know, I started competing throughout high school and I would go to surf contests and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the industry. I fell in love with everything about it. I got sponsored and sort of just fell in love with brands at a really young age. And um, I was never good enough to go professional, but I was good enough to self-market myself and work with brands and start developing relationships with brands through surfing. So that's really my background. And then I moved to uh, San Diego for college and went to San Diego State. And then um, I was a surf coach after I graduated and I was on the surf team down there. So surfing kind of was the outlet of my life that gave me my, my first passion and kind of became the compass for, for everything I do, I guess you would say. That's awesome. Are you still surfing today? I'm surfing all the time as much as I can, for sure. Yeah, I live two blocks from the beach. So 
You have to then. You still have to find those moments. I mean, it might be tough, I'm sure, when a company is growing quickly, getting partially acquired. and But yeah, finding those moments to kind of like take a breath still, I'm sure, are really important for you. Totally. So what was the aha moment when it came to Blender's eyewear? You're in the surf scene. I mean, what was that moment that you're like, I should make some awesome eyewear? You know, it's funny. So every time my favorite DJ would play here in San Diego, I would go see his, I I would go to his shows. And one show he played, I wore some neon green sunglasses that I bought from Target for five bucks. And everyone in the club was coming up to me asking about my shades. And they were like, Chase, those are sick. Where'd you get them? Like, let me try them on. And I was like, what? They were only for like five bucks. I I bought them from Target. Like, they're not that cool. And like I said, I was a surf coach. So I was working eight to five at the beach every single day. And I just started noticing the sunglasses that people were wearing and started to see a huge gap between the $5 shades and the high-end shades. And so the aha moment was really on the dance floor when like I had the attention and then I validated it by saying, whoa, there's not only a need for a brand between these high-end fashion sunglasses and low-end fashion sunglasses, but what better place to do this in San Diego? Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of people have great ideas like that, but like, how did you know, or how did you even have the drive to be like, I'm going to do something about this. I'm actually going to make a company. You know, it's funny because I was around a lot of successful entrepreneurs in, in college and a couple of my friends before me started successful businesses. So I saw what they were doing. It was super inspiring for me. I was really passionate about brands. I was really passionate about surfing. I knew I wanted to do something in action sports. I knew I wanted to like do something around that. And this was like the perfect time for me to be like, okay, here it is. I validated it. Let's go ahead and, and, and go forward with it. So I knocked on my roommate's door and I was like, hey, can I borrow 2000 bucks? I want to start a sunglass company. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I want to start a sunglass company. And so just jumped in head first. No experience. Okay. So what did those early days look like? You got your $2,000 from your friend, I know. So what were next steps to start even trying to create a product? <sighs> Man, that was hard. That was a lot of Googling. Yeah. That was a lot of picking up the phone. Googling things and literally just figuring it out, right? Like I said, I had no experience. I had no idea what I, what I was doing. I had no business plan, but I just had a lot of confidence that I can figure it out. So we needed to find some place to make these things, right? Like a manufacturer. So I, I started calling places on Google and that led me to wholesalers up in LA and they had factories overseas that spoke fluent Mandarin. So I started to learn a little bit about the manufacturing process that way. And that kind of led me to, you know, understanding, okay, how are we going to get these things made? Who are we going to work with, et cetera? And then when it came to like designs and really validating what is blenders, like something that people actually want, we built a Facebook page and we put out designs and we had about a thousand Facebook fans before even having a product. And before we knew it, we had like a lot of people commenting on the styles. Like, these are awesome. How much do they cost? Where are you going to, where are you going to sell these? And we're like, okay, so this idea is validated. There's demand for it. Let's figure out how to bring it to life. Uh, Okay. I'm sure most people are now wondering, like myself, how did you even get those fans on a Facebook page? Like, What were you guys putting on that page to have people become fans of something that didn't exist yet? So basically in San Diego, I had a very large network from college. Like, I built a very large network of people that I knew. San Diego was very popular for just like active, vibrant, fun things to do. There was a huge community in San Diego. So I tapped into that community pretty easily. And I was able to leverage friends, family members, et cetera, to like invite them into this Facebook page. And um, it really just became our foundation to spitting out designs, seeing if there was demand, seeing what people liked, what they didn't like, you know, what was going to be our first step in terms of bringing this to life. So that's kind of what I was able to do. And just from my surf background of networking and building relationships with people, that kind of came natural to me. Funny because a couple of people we've had on the show also mentioned kind of having like this college network and that's how they started their company by tapping into that. So 
college can still be good for things these days, mainly if you want to start a company and you need a good network to like launch to in the very early days. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's the best thing you can take away from college. It's the 2 a.m. conversations and the network you build. Yep. Yep. So who was the one who was actually designing the product and putting the design ideas out there to this Facebook page to see what people liked? So I was playing basketball with my neighbor and I told him my idea and I was like, Hey, I need a graphic designer who can help me with this and bring this to life. And he's like, you got to meet my roommate. And so I met his roommate. His, his name was Blake. He was my next door neighbor. I told him the idea. He was a graphic designer. He went to the art Institute and he was the kind of guy that was able to kind of put this on paper and bring it to life. So we partnered up within three days. We had our name. It was called blenders because we lived on Hornblend street and we were putting out designs on Facebook. And uh, sure enough, we were on our way, but we had no idea actually how hard it was going to be able to make these things. That was a whole nother beast we had to tackle. Yeah, I want to actually dive into that a bit because, of course, right now the world is kind of struggling when it comes to supply chain and manufacturing and, you know, actually getting a product even here in the first place. So what are things that you're doing now that maybe are completely different than how you started out? I want to kind of hear about some of the lessons that you learned when just like trying to find, you know, manufacturers in the beginning to like, what are you doing today that's probably vastly different? Totally. So manufacturing is probably the biggest headache at the beginning. And it will always be a headache, right? It's always a huge challenge. I knew nothing about supply chain. I knew nothing about global markets and how they functioned. I knew nothing about importing and exporting. And so we basically found a factory and we worked very, very closely with them in terms of like what we were looking for, trying to understand how these things were manufactured. I had no idea they take 120 days to produce. And so that was a huge challenge for us to try and overcome, especially when you're bootstrapping a business with, with no money, your cash is tied up for a long time. So really leveraging that supplier, working very, very closely and trying to build that trust, because a lot of this is about trust early on and, and really establishing yourself as a strong client and just going through the trials and tribulations, you know, ordering product, getting product and seeing sort of the issues that come and then trying to solve those problems. And so at the beginning, we were running everything through one factory. The big difference is now we've diversified our supply chain to where we have seven to 10 different factories, all producing different things and all specialized in different areas of our product line that are actually experts in what they do. Because some factories are really good with plastics, some are really good with lenses, some are really good with metals. And at the beginning, because I found that one, I don't want to have to do it again. I was jamming everything through one factory and then they would shut down from like a typhoon and we'd be closed for three months. And oh my God, if they get wiped out, we have no backup. So we've been able to diversify a lot, a lot better now than before. So would you advise most entrepreneurs now who start a company, you know, and they're looking for manufacturers, would you say, try and find a couple to begin with or try and go part by part and see who's the best in that area? Or do you think actually starting off with one in the beginning is okay for like a little bit of time until you figure out the lay of the land? I think if I was going to do it all over again, I would get a few and bid them against each other. I was in a rush and I was eager to start. So I was like, okay, I feel good about this one. I'm just going to go for it. But I would run the gamut, get like three to five, bid them against each other, really look at what they're good at and like what they specialize in and then go from there. Like I was just, I wasn't doing any research. I was just like going off of complete gut instinct of what I felt was right at the time. Yeah. Which is, Hey, that's all you had. Yeah. How about when it came to attracting customers that were not from your already existing network? What does it look like today? Because you know the world has changed a lot over the past couple of years and how we used to be able to reach new customers. We really can't do it the same way anymore. So what are you all doing to drive the demand that you have? Yeah. So Blenders was built from a backpack on the beach, right? One pair, one style, one customer at a time. And that's all I knew how to do. I didn't know how to build a website, yet alone drive traffic to a website. So 
the early days was all about pounding the pavement and just getting product out in the real world and selling it with my own two hands. How many were you selling a day when you were doing it that way? Well, I was giving about five to seven surf lessons a day and I would most likely sell one pair to every person I was giving a lesson to. So I'd come home with like 150 bucks and go, go into, uh, go to Wells Fargo and deposit that. So, wow, that's a fun story. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it was, um, very, very humble beginnings for sure. Starting, starting blenders, but, um, that's how the brand was built. And that's how our name was started to spread was just right here in San Diego in our own backyard. And that taught me a lot. That taught me like, that really taught me how to sell, really taught me how to like interact with customers. It really gave me perspective on how important it is to build word of mouth, things like that. And then, you know, as social media started to rise, we started to tap into Instagram, Facebook, and started to advertise online and started to kind of figure out how to build an online business. And from that point forward, we were gung-ho on let's go 100% in direct to consumer and, and, and focus on our community that way. Mm-hmm. So how do I think about the behind the scenes of that today? I mean, it seems like such an easy transition when you say it. It sounds so nice. Like, oh, yeah, I started by selling it on the beach and then I just went online. Oh, no. Give me some of maybe the stories in between of like what that actually looked like. So let's just give you perspective here. So this is how confident I was on day one of launching blenders. I was like, okay, I had enough money to buy 300 pairs. And we launched on March 13th, 2012 at the San Diego State Entrepreneur Fair. I was so confident I was going to, I was going to knock this out of the park. I I brought all 300 pairs with me thinking I was going to sell 300 pairs. I walked away selling 10 pairs. That was the most humbling experience of my life was that first moment of like, okay, this is going to be really, really hard, a lot harder than I thought. And so from that point forward, it was like, things were difficult. You know, we like ran out of money and and it was scary. Like I didn't know what I was doing and trying to kind of just, just fight one day at a time. And that's when I really tapped into my network. That's when I really just started to build the brand locally and just do whatever I could to just get our name out there and get product out there. And so those in-betweens were really challenging. Obviously we had some wins, we had some losses, but it's all about momentum, you know, and it's all about trying to like learn those hard lessons in between that really train you for the harder days to come and kind of give you those, like that strong grit that you're really going to need to last. Cause I almost quit many times, many times I was like, this, this is too hard. How did you convince yourself not to? I mean, I bet a lot of people would go to a fair like that and be like, obviously the demand's not here. Obviously the big incumbents in this space are already winning. I'm not going to compete against like the Oakleys of the world or whatever. Like, how did you convince yourself that, okay, we can get through this? It was a defining moment in my life where literally I was six months in and I remember somebody telling me, I was like, dude, I'm going to quit. This is just too hard. And they were like, Chase, the only way you're going to fail is if you stop, just keep going. And from that point forward, that's when our brand motto of life and forward motion was defined. Such a good brand motto. That's what this is. This brand's about moving forward. This brand's about getting better. This brand's about being fresh. Like all I got to do is just focus on one day at a time. And like, that's, that's my mantra. And so that, that advice is critical. And that's what our brand motto was found. And it came at a time where I literally almost quit. So yeah, you have a lot of those moments for sure. Yep. And did you have a team at that point or was it still just you? It was just me and my business partner, two guys, two, two MacBooks and some six packs of Coors Light and California burritos. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then fast forward to today, what are maybe, what are some platforms that you're most bullish on? Are you tapping into, you know, YouTube and influencers or Instagram still are like, are you trying something completely outside the box? What are you most excited about? Yeah, that's um, it's a great question because there's so many changes going on in the world right now with how we interact and how we communicate and how we, how we buy products. So 
one thing we've done really well over the years was figure out how to sell through Facebook and Instagram. And, and we've become so conditioned to that platform that it's become like our main driving force. And that platform is not as effective as it used to be as of April of 2021. This new iOS system rolled out that's having a very huge challenge on brands trying to interact with customers. So we're going through some big pivots. You know, we're trying to kind of offboard from Facebook. We're experimenting with TV coming up in March, which we're going to launch commercials. We've launched uh, our first retail store in 2019, and we have plans to open six more stores this year. That's that's really exciting because I think retail is the coolest thing you can do as a brand owner, and like it's very experiential. And when you're an online brand, like you need a living and breathing footprint. And so, I believe retail is going to be the next huge wave, and I'm really excited about that. We just launched internationally as well. We're trying to kind of diversify our reach. So we, we launched a new geos like Canada and Australia. We're focused on prescription as well, which is another big category that we're trying to tap into. So yeah, a lot of exciting things that we're doing at the moment. Okay, that's a lot. Wow. Okay, I, I actually want to go back all the way first. Well, first let's start with retail. Then I want to get into TV. Uh, but for retail, I mean, I've heard so many mixed opinions on that on this show so far every guest you know some are pro retail some are kind of like no why would i even get into that that's a lot of risk some are doing partnership models where they're like i don't have to you know own the store fully i'm just going to partner with other brands so tell me why you're betting so big on that and why it's so important going forward yeah i mean i mean sunglasses by nature are experiential right and i think as a brand owner as as a brand like it's super important that you are where your customers are and I think retail is going to be the next big way for that. It really allows you to kind of open up a platform to, to, to show the heart and soul of your brand. And so when we look at kind of how this, the world's transition from 2020 to now, it's like brands that are betting bigger in retail, I think are going to win because online is becoming so expensive and so competitive and so saturated that retail gives you that diversity. It gives you that living and breathing footprint. You know, it shows the heart and soul of your brand. It brings the customer to life. Like there's so many aspects of it that I think are super beneficial. And is it risky? Absolutely. It's very risky. It's expensive. It's a five to 10 year commitment. It takes a lot of time, but the long-term playout, and you're seeing it in bigger brands like Lululemon, the Warby Parkers are betting big on retail because leases are cheap right now. And I believe like the brands that are willing to take that risk are going to get the reward if done right. Yeah. I mean, I love that perspective. It's also like such a different world today, thinking about comparing online, you know, acquiring a customer that way, actually becoming like more expensive than how you maybe can interact with them in the real world. I mean, totally go back a couple of years and you would like, if you were, were to say that people would be like, you're crazy. Like retail is way more expensive and you can't even track it and blah, 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 all the reasons, but we're living in such different times. I mean, did you actually go and come up with what you think it would take to acquire a customer in retail and kind of like the LTV of that customer over time and like all the other things you get access to with that person being in person compared to your online activities? Like, did you go into that level of detail or is it like a bigger, just higher level thought process? For sure. It's, it's, it's both. You know, I, I think it's from a consumer experience level, right? There's a level of like experience that your customers want to have and there's a level of relationship, right? And there's only a certain amount of emotion that you can that you can convey online than you can in person. And our conversion rate in, in person is like 40 to 50% versus online, which is 4%. So it's like we get people in our store and they leave and they're like, I'm not shopping anywhere else, but with these guys, you know, like that's that's the goal. And so that's the kind of experience that we want to have. You know, we want to have the coolest sunglass stores in the world. And so I believe that 
we're definitely willing to take the risk. It's scary. It's a large rollout, but uh, I believe the LTV on on retail is far stronger than it is online. Mm-hmm. How do you go about picking where you want your stores to be? I mean, is it all just based off foot traffic? Or are you also kind of experimenting outside just the big, you know, hubs of cities? Yeah. So we we look at our our online data, right? The online data is really the the metrics that we're using to kind of look at specific cities, look at specific areas that we want to be in. You know, retail is way different than online, right? Like online, you can't just put your website next to vans and piggyback on their traffic, you know? But retail, you can open up a store next to a, a popular restaurant or a coffee shop or another big, big like brand store, department store and piggyback off their traffic. So locations are extremely important with retail. Like it's the most important thing. And so we're really looking at what cities are our hotspots? What are our top 10 to 15 cities? What are the best locations in those cities? And can we get leases that make sense in those cities? And, and what do those look like in terms of a commitment and a build out and kind of what does that look like? So that's kind of our process, right? But obviously there's more to it, you know, but um, that's kind of our roadmap. Yeah, it was interesting. I was just in downtown Detroit and I was looking at this retail partnership model between, I think it's, they're called Shinola. They're like a leather company. Yeah. yeah. And then they mm-hmm. had a coffee shop inside of there. So I went in for the coffee because I was like, I'm, I want some tea. And then I'm in there. I'm like, oh, this is cool stuff. Wandering around. And then they also had a partnership with Crate and Barrel. And it was just interesting seeing how they're all taking these big bets and also just thinking of like, how do you create an experience in different ways, but also betting big on retail. So it's just cool to think where the world is headed and how people are just thinking about it a bit differently now, if they're willing to experiment and like get back in and play. Some people I think have been burned too much though. They're kind of nervous to get back into this world. For sure. I think a lot of the old like legacy brands are, are very like resistant or like the new direct consumers, a little bit more fierce, fast, furious, like willing to take those risks and, and really bet, bet big. Like that's where I think the landscape is really shifting is the brands that are willing to spend big and bet big are, are the ones that are going to be winning in the next few years. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, Come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. How did you shift your mindset starting out from, you know, selling out of your backpack to then like, okay, now we're selling to a community of people that I know now online and then now getting into retail. How do you go about thinking about hiring and like finding the right people to even get advice from? It seems like it's such a a different area that a lot of founders, I think, struggle to find the right network and team to kind of support them in that, you know, next level of launch. Totally. That's been a big work in progress for me, honestly. Like I, I think when you bootstrap a business and you start it from nothing and you're the founder and you learn to do every role yourself, they call it the founder's curse, right? Where like you become so accustomed to doing everything yourself that you fail to delegate or you fail to hire. And it's a blessing and a curse, right? I think it's a blessing in the fact that you learn what you need before you need to hire for it. 
but it's a curse and a fact that you hold on for too long. And so learning to let go is probably one of my biggest challenges, right? And learning how to hire and learning how to manage different people and the personalities that come with it. So for us, it's really about like finding the right people with a quality that's super important to us. Like we, we want self-starters, you know, we want people that are able to like think about things and get them done. And we want all of our departments to be self-reliant, to not be reliant on, on other departments to like do their job. So, you know, last year we went through a huge, a huge reorg, I guess you would call it, where we hired a lot of new people. And it's been a big adjustment for me personally, being normally an activator and a guy on the ground floor as like a doer to now being more of a strategy, visionary thought leader, you know? And so I'm still having to catch myself on like, okay, I need to delegate this versus do it myself or, you know, um, work with the team. So that's been hard for me, but hiring people, the way that I look at it now, it's like, you need to hire before you need this position, you know, really understand what you need and why you need it. And then make sure you spend the time carefully to hire the right people and not rush into it because it's expensive. It's, it takes a lot of time and it's bad for morale. If you're hiring and letting people go and hiring, and letting people go, like you want to do it strategically and carefully. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was just listening to a show with the founder of this platform called Titan. It's like this new investment hedge fund style thing. And he had like really interesting thoughts around how to hire people. And the two that I remember was one, you need to hire uh, an employee who has like this wartime mentality. Like what happens when you're in a crisis? What happens when like things actually go really bad? How do you react? And so I've been thinking about like, how do you craft questions in an interview to figure out how this person handles something bad or a crisis? And so that was one of the things he said. And the other one was around, um, does this person have the ability and drive for self-growth? Because I can't, you know, pull you along with me the entire way. Like, do you actually want to do better? Do you have that drive and initiative to also grow yourself within this company. Mm-hmm. There was a third one, but I can't remember the third one. But either way, I was like, these are great tips for hiring. Wow. No, they're, they're good. And you got to understand like loyalty is dead right now. It's mm-hmm. very hard to find loyalty. You know, if you want loyalty, hire a dog. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Like people are very unloyal right now. And, and, and it is a employee's market where people are exploring all options and they want new things and they don't want to be committed and they want flexibility. So we're just in an interesting time currently. And growth means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Like it's not a one size fits all, you know? So learning those nuances and, and, and learning how to manage the personalities that come with it, I think is the biggest lesson to learn for sure. Yep. Okay. So the next piece I wanted to touch on was TV. This is also a topic, especially in the past, just three episodes where everyone's very bullish on TV, shoppable TV, getting ads on Roku. And this is definitely a very new thing that I've been hearing over the past couple months. I was not hearing this last year when I was interviewing people. And so I want to hear how you guys are exploring this and why you're bullish on trying it out. Right. So when we look at blenders and like our, our marketing strategy currently in our base, right? Like when you start to look at Facebook as like your main driving source where, you know, 80% of our spend goes to Facebook, we're at a level where it's so big now. The only other channels that can be significant are channels that have the scale. And the next big channel that has that scale is TV. And so that's our next big bet. And how we're looking at TV, it's like we're, we're looking at it. Just like you said, we're going to start with connected TV first. I'm actually treating it very similarly to Facebook, where it's like we're going to make three different commercials and we're going to have 15 second cuts and 30 second cuts. And we're just going to test a ton of different things. All we need is one to hit. And so what we can do with connected TV is we have a lot of the data that we can actually pull from Facebook, which is, which is helpful. And we, it's a lot more trackable. So we'll start to kind of launch in certain regions and see if we see a lift with our performance on Facebook and hopes that we do, and then kind of scale the spend that way. And then if that works, we'll look at linear TV, which is cable. 
So I think this is the next big channel. Is it going to work as well as Facebook? I don't think anything will ever work as good as Facebook personally, but it's something that I think can help. You know what I mean? And like, that's what we're trying to do is get do whatever we can to get off of Facebook and not be so reliable on Facebook. Yep. The only thing that I wonder is like, is the barrier to entry too high in TV? I keep hearing this like $50,000 number thrown around of like, you need to make a $50,000 minimum test to even know if it's working or not, because it's still a little bit hard to track. And it's like, man, I don't know if a lot of brands can just drop 50 grand right away. So yeah, is that kind of what you're seeing too? It's interesting you say that because it's so true. It's like Facebook, all you need is like, a photographer and like a product and you can go outside and shoot a Facebook ad and launch it within the same day. It's like TV, you need storytelling, you need a creative production team, you need a you need equipment, you need editing, you need to like you're editing a high quality commercial. Like that's that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. I mean, it's taken us 3 to 5 months oh, wow. to get our commercials even shot and we shot them last week and now we have a month to edit them. So it's a long time. I mean, you got to commit to it really. And then the spend and the agency that you have to sign with too. So it's it's definitely a commitment. Like you shouldn't just do TV to like, oh, I think we're going to give it a shot. Like you're like, no, I need. We're going to spend big in TV. We're going to bet big. We're going to spend the money to do a good commercial. We're going to do enough commercials that we really give it a solid crack, and see what happens. You know. Yeah. Are there other brands or like friends in the space that you kind of tapped into to ask for best practices or like any advice before just jumping into it? Totally. Yeah. There was a few brands that I've, I've reached out to, and that's usually our, our best way to kind of learn about the success of TV is working or talking to other brands that have done it, getting their perspective on it, and then talking to the agencies and talking to their clients and, and seeing what kind of worked for them and what kind of didn't. And I'm um, sure it's different for everyone, but there's a common theme that most brands are trying to achieve. And I think if you can align around that and be put your best foot forward, it's, it's really helpful to get, to get that type of advice and, and hear from other brands too. Okay, so now I'll ask a little uh, a question that's a little farther out there. Are you exploring any uh, of the new trends like NFTs or getting in the metaverse, selling your glasses in the metaverse? Like, have you been thinking about any of this or is that a little too far out there? You know, I'm like, I, I talk about this with my friends all the time. They're always like, let's get some blenders in the metaverse. And I'm I do like, think it's shoot. the perfect product for it, though. I'm like, most things I'm like, no. But I'm like, having sunglasses on your person, on your little avatar. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty great. I'm trying to like wrap my head around, like I understand the concept of it, right? But I'm trying to wrap my head around the actuality of it. Like, how does this actually play out? You know what I mean? I think, I think the NFT stuff is a little bit more, like I can comprehend that a little easier than I can like the metaverse, but it just seems so new at this point that I'm like, I don't really know which, like how to approach it. You know, I almost need a little bit more time to kind of like let this play out, but it is, it is something I'm thinking about. It does scare me, the metaverse. Like I'm not a huge fan of it. Like, I don't think it's, I'm not a gung-ho, like this is our next big thing. It's just, I look at it as a little bit of a nightmare sort of thing. Like it's a little scary, but I'm trying to kind of keep an open mind with it too at the same time. Yeah. I mean, someone the other day had a really good point that like, it's already, the metaverse has already kind of been here. Like we're already interacting virtually online. Like a lot of the things that are, people are saying is like so brand new. We've actually been doing it. We're just using different terminology. And then yes, there's a piece of it of like, yeah, not everyone is like putting on VR headsets. And going into a different world. And maybe that's not actually what it ends up being, but a lot of the aspects are kind of already here. Totally. Just put the new take on it, which that made me feel a little bit better. I was like, okay, it's not some completely new world that, you know, we all have to figure out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I get like buying land in the metaverse, like that, that, that to me makes sense. That to you makes sense. That to me, I still, I mean, I did it with one of my friend's companies, but I still was like, what am I buying here? Who actually is going to value this piece of land? I didn't really get it. 
Yeah, it's super arbitrary. Like it's just it's it's just what what value are people willing to spend for it? You know, and like it's just mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a huge data pool with it. I think I think Facebook's trying to kind of like really own the human consciousness, and that's a little scary to me. Yeah, that part no, not into that. Yeah, it's just it's 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 a little scary as it seems like it's trying to make humans obsolete at the same time too, which I don't really mm-hmm. like. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. We'll see. It is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting to watch. Okay, so what about talking about your company got acquired, like 70% of your company got acquired by an Italian eyewear company called, is it Safilo Group? Is that how you say it? Safilo. Safilo Group. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear the behind the scenes on that and, you know, what it's like having a bigger company coming in. Is it helpful? And what was that like? Yeah, so it was a big, it was a big decision. You know, I mean, we were eight year or seven years in at that point. We were growing at light speed and it was a big, big directional change that we had to had to make, you know, and for me, it's like, I never started blenders with the intention of selling it. You know, I started it because I loved it. I started it because I wanted to create a brand that resonated with our generation and because I had passion for it and because I fully believe in the vision. And, you know, we reached a point where I was like, okay, is this going to become a lifestyle business that I can have fun with or that I can kind of like grow with, or is this going to become a global powerhouse? And I started this to be the best. I started it to be the biggest and one day be on the same level as Oakley, you know what I mean? And and so that was the real decision for, for partnering with Safalo, right? And considering their strengths and what they had to offer in terms of being the second largest strategic eyewear brand in the world. They were experts in product. They were experts in manufacturing. They were experts in prescription and global expansion. And we were experts in direct consumer marketing, social media, branding, things like that. So the relationship was really a peanut butter meets jelly sort of relationship. You know what I mean? They were looking to really transform their... Um, their company and go and go digital. And we, we already kind of had those capabilities and we were looking to go global and expand in RX and expand our manufacturing and they had those capabilities. So it's been a very pleasant and, you know, exciting relationship. And it's funny because I was like, okay, once this deal goes through, I should be able to like take a deep breath and be a little bit more creative and be able to like do more things I want to do with the business. And it's like, it's actually the opposite of like, whoa, I have a billion dollar company that spent a lot of money on me. And I don't want to let them down, you know? And so I, I have this like newfound pressure and new motivation and new horsepower to like really take this business to the moon. And so it's been exciting. I've learned a lot through the process. They've been great to work with. Nothing with the day-to-day has really changed. I'm still running the show, which is great. The culture's still the same. We're still in San Diego. Like the only thing that's really changing is just reporting to a bigger brother and learning how to be, how to have board meetings. And it's taught me a lot about the CEO role, you know, itself. And how I could become a better CEO and just learning from their other brands that they have. So it's been great. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I look forward to continuing on this journey with them. Yeah, that's great. Were you actively looking for a partner or did they just come pop up like, hello, here to acquire you? We were starting to run a process. You okay. know, we were in the beginning stages and I was getting phone calls, like five to 10 phone calls a week from people that were interested, but it was, it was just coming out of like thin air. Wait, what do you mean starting a process? What was your process? What were you all, what were you actually doing? So we hired an investment banker to kind of okay. help us like go to market and we didn't even make it to market. We didn't even finish our process um, when Safalo kind of came in and said, hey, like the timing of this was perfect. And we were just starting to kind of get our process off the ground and they were looking to go digital and they flew to San Diego undercover and we met and chatted about things. They came to our store and everything was like super, you know, confidential, but they were like, we like this business. We like you, we believe in this, like we're interested. And we were able to kind of get the deal done quickly, but it took, a, it took like not 
12, 12 months of work that was supposed to take 12 months of time, like was jammed into like four months. And it was, so it was a ton of due diligence. Um, as you probably know, these deals take the numerous amounts of work and paperwork and kind of like follow up. So it was a huge, it was a lot at once, a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the support now can also be super helpful. Like you said, having this big brother in a good way to tap into and kind of be like, how are y'all handling this right now? Or like hopping on their shipments and being like, we'll just get on your ship or your freight and not have to worry about all the other problems going on because you're a bigger brand. I'm sure there's a lot of good advantages. For sure. And like, you know, it all happened pre-COVID. So it was like, this was all happening pre-COVID and then COVID hit and the, the deal wasn't even closed. And then the deal got delayed six months. And so it was like, really shaky kind of going through this because I didn't know if it was going to be able to actually go go through with COVID and everything. You know, a lot of these big strategics were pulling out because they wanted to hold cash. They didn't know what was going to happen. Yep. But, you know, they're a billion dollar company and they move slower. You know, they're just not as fast as us in terms of like certain things that we do every day. So trying to understand that and get used to kind of the more, the, the slower processes and slower speed, it's been an adjustment period too. So what is your vision over the next couple of years for Blender's Eyewear? Our vision is to deliver the coolest and most affordable sunglasses in the world. That's what we want to do. We want to be on every continent. We want to be sponsoring the world's biggest athletes. We want to have stores in 25 cities. We want to own the face. And we want to just deliver the coolest product that we absolutely can with the absolute coolest community. That's great. (laughs) We want to be the new school millennial Oakley. I have a ton of respect for Oakley and everything they've done. And I really look up to them but we want to steal more energy remotely than anyone. So that's, that's cool. Coming for you. I love that. Good audacious goals. Yeah, that's very, very cool. It'd be fun to watch you guys for sure get there too. Thank you. Well, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Chase? All right, lightning round. All right, all right. First, what keeps you up at night? <sighs> what keeps me up at night? Are we being as resourceful and are we being as efficient as possible with the business? That's a great one. What's one thing you don't understand today, but you wish you did? The metaverse. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've received that you think about time and time again? I think I already said it. You know, the best advice I ever received was the only way you're going to fail is if you stop. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who's your biggest supporter? My biggest supporter, probably... My family, I would say, and like my friends. I have a really strong group of friends and they're, they're all very supportive of me. That's great. Last one. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? It would be called Cut to the Chase. That's a good one. Catchy. <laughs> my first guest would be Larry David. Okay. I feel like you've thought about this. If I can get him. Oh, you can get him. I think Larry David would be very, very fun to have on. That's great. I love that. Well, Chase, you were very fun to have on. So thanks so much for hopping on the podcast today and joining me. It was really cool to hear what you guys are up to and where you're headed. Where can people find out more about you and Blenders Eyewear? Awesome. Well, yeah, you can check us out online, blenderseyewear.com, on Instagram, at Blenders Eyewear. And then you can uh, come by our store anytime you're in San Diego. Our door is always open. We've got Coronas, we got California burritos, and we got sunglasses. Um, and you can check out me on Instagram, at Chase Fisher. So thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.